Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast, the show where we correct all of your misperceptions about <laughs> the great man who was Napoleon Bonaparte and tell you the way it really happened as far as our opinion is concerned. This is episode 40. Welcome back, my esteemed colleague, J. David Markham, Napoleonic historian emeritus how are you today? Emeritus. Mate? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't even know what that means. I just sort of sound again. No, no. Emeritus means I'm no longer that. Now, maybe, maybe you know something that I don't. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I hope I'm still a historian, and I hope I'm not emeritus. Uh, although it's it's like the, a lot of folks, uh, I point out a little gray in my hair, and they say, "Well, that makes you look distinguished." And I, my retort to that usually is, "Well, it's." Always better to be distinguished than extinguished. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take whatever title well, you, you look, to give me. I've learned something. I, I never realized that emeritus meant retired. I thought it meant, like, distinguished. Well, no, it means, it means past, basically. Like, I'm president emeritus of a group. That means I'm a past president, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and there is a hint of, of being distinguished about it, I suppose, but... But I'm still a historian. I'm still, you know, a, a, a scholar, I guess, and I'm still cranking out books. So we'll we'll save the emeritus for later on. <laughs> when you're a professor and you retire, you become oftentimes a professor emeritus. I mean, that, that's where the term is usually used in academia. Yeah, I've had a few of those um, on G'day World over the over the years. But there you go, and I never realized what it meant. Well, it's because I never went to university. I'm I'm ineducated, as I like to say. <laughs> uh, well, you had me fooled. I would, have, I would have assumed you had graduated from uh, from Oxford or Stanford or, or some such place. School of Hard Knocks, sir. Um, now, listen, uh, we got him on the boat last time. Amazingly enough, we did, Cameron. Uh, he's he's on the boat, uh, and let me just take a moment of personal privilege here and say that as as we sit here on the 11th of of, of May of 2008, that. Uh, there will be a little gap in our, our next shows because uh, this Wednesday I'm, I'm getting on the airplane, not the boat, and going down to uh, Cabo San Lucas in Mexico to, so Barbara and I can celebrate our 25th anniversary. So so uh, I must admit part of my mind is, is on the beach. Uh, Napoleon is headed for a, a beach of sorts, uh, although he doesn't realize it yet. Uh, but... Uh, at any rate, yeah, we got him on on the boat. We got him on a uh, boat. Yeah, we got him on the first of, of of a couple of boats actually that that he's that he's going to be on, and that that's just of the British boats. He'd also been on on a couple of Hold French on. boats. I've got I've got to interrupt us here. You know, I can already hear uh, certain of our naval uh, listeners complaining that it's a ship, Chips. not Chips. a boat. Like, get a life, people. It, you know, it's all the same. Goes in the water, it's a boat, as far as I'm concerned. Well, no, it's, it's, it's not, Cameron. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 the only problem I have, and, and experts out there no doubt have a way to delineate it, uh, but where boat ends and ship begins uh, is, is not something that everybody would necessarily know. These are clearly ships, of course. It's just like boy and girl uh, versus a man and woman. Where do you stop being a boy and become a man? And where do you stop being a girl and become a, a woman? And you know, I'm, I'm not sure anyone really knows. And I think the same is true with boat and ship. And we had somebody say, I, 
I call it a frigate by mistake, the Bellathrone, when apparently it is, in fact, a, a, a ship of the line. And uh, that's a more easily discernible technicality. Uh, but uh, at any rate, we're rambling again, and, and, and I've, I've been known to do that. Uh, but we, we get him on the ship Bellathrone, headed by Captain uh, Maitland, of course. And Captain Maitland uh, is going to really go out of his way to treat Napoleon as well as he thinks he possibly can while being consistent with the fact that Napoleon uh, is a rather controversial uh, prisoner, shall we say. And Napoleon would, of course, dispute very, very vehemently that, that he was not a prisoner. And, and, and I don't think he was a prisoner either. Uh, but it, and, and there's technical aspects of that we'll probably get into later. Uh, but, you know, keeping in mind the unusual nature of the situation and the fact that, that Maitland is very, very well aware of, although he's not really letting Napoleon know this, uh, Maitland understands fully that Napoleon's fate is a matter of some controversy. Uh, most historians believe that Maitland, at least to some extent, uh, gave Napoleon's entourage reason to believe that, that he would definitely be able to go and settle uh, in, in Great Britain. Uh, and it may very well be that Maitland, while he probably didn't really know that for sure, in fact, there's some evidence that fairly early on he found out some evidence to the contrary, he may well have thought uh, that, uh, that this would eventually happen. So I, I'm fairly kind toward Maitland, uh, who, as I say, uh, he gave his cabin uh, to, to Napoleon, uh, if he was simply welcoming a general uh, aboard, uh, he wouldn't necessarily have to give up his cabin, but he was uh, welcoming a former emperor, a, a, a deposed emperor, on, and, and, he, and he showed Napoleon the kind of, of dignity uh, that, that, uh, that Napoleon could expect. And he was shown uh, to, to his cabin, Napoleon was, by, by Maitland personally, uh, Napoleon was very pleased. I mean, Napoleon is is grasping at straws to some extent. Uh, he's looking for reasons to believe that all is going to be well because he realizes that for whatever reason, he didn't get out of the country on his own. He didn't make his way off to the United States. He never was able to, to get onto a French ship, as we discussed a time or two ago or three, and uh, make it uh, out of the country you know, under a French flag, he he finally ended up largely uh, due to his his, his own delay. In, in my opinion, uh, he finally had to to surrender uh, to uh, the the British. Uh, he would probably take issue with the word surrender. He he offered himself up uh, essentially as as an immigrant. He, he steps onto British. Uh, uh, under British control when he gets onto the ship and he says, now I'm, you know, under your law and, and uh, I want to be treated as if, as if I were someone who was immigrating uh, to your country. Although, by the way, if you'd like to take me to America, that's, that's fine too. So, so uh, you know, Napoleon is looking, looking for signs that all is going to be well. And initially, he has a lot of reason to believe that all is going to be well. He's shown very 
graciously to 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 the the, the captain's cabin, which is now his. He tells the uh, Captain Maitland, you know, oh, this is a wonderful facility. And there was a a, a, a portrait, uh, a miniature of Maitland's wife sitting on the table in, 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 in the captain's cabin. And and uh, Napoleon asked about her and said, oh, you're, what a beautiful young wife you have and and so forth. So the two men were very were, were very gracious. Uh, Maitland, by the way, is speaking French. He actually could speak some French. At this stage, Napoleon speaks no English at all. Uh, uh, and, but Maitland's able to, you know, more or less keep up with them uh, fairly well. <clears throat> and uh, so after a period of time, uh, a very short period of time, uh, the rest of Napoleon's entourage, uh, uh, his suite, uh, is, is, is brought on, on board. Uh, and Napoleon then asks to, to have the officers of the ship introduced to him in a, a formal but, but very pleasant ceremony. The captain would announce each of the officers. They would come out. They would bow. <clears throat> and Napoleon would, would ask them a question or two and, uh, you know, personal things like, like, you know, where, how long have you been in the service? Where were you born? You know, what kind of a family do you have? And, and uh, Napoleon was, as, as most people who have read about him know, uh, Napoleon was an extraordinarily uh, gracious, charming man when he wanted to be. Uh, he could charm the socks off of you. Uh, and, and he knows he's in a delicate position, and he knows that the very best thing he can do right now is to be very, very friendly, very outgoing, make it clear that, okay, now we're, we're all in this together. We're all on the same side, as it were. So he... he uh, he, he, he does this. He, he meets these people. One of the officers presented, by the way, was the ship's surgeon, uh, Barry O'Mara, uh, uh, the, the, the first of the people that he meets that, that are going to be really intertwined in, in his fate in ways that neither man could possibly have imagined at the time that they, that they met. Uh, because Napoleon is, again, he's thinking that if worse comes to worse, they're going to do to him what they did to, to his brother Lucian. Uh, they're going to put him up in a nice English countryside home. Uh, maybe some guards around keeping track of him and so on, but, but more or less he's going to be left there. The best case scenario from his point probably would be that the British would say, you know, we really don't want you in our country, but you'd like to go to the United States. And as far as we're concerned, they deserve you, so we'll take you there. Uh, you know, that's still, I think, Napoleon's uh, bottom line. So he gets introduced to all these things. I think he stretches his legs a little bit in the cabin. And then he says, I'd like to, to take a tour of the ship. Uh, now, the guys, you know, they're doing their early morning cleaning. Remember, this is quite early in the day. Uh, but Napoleon gets what he wants to. So he's taken around with the captain, you know, and and uh, he, he talks uh, to the men and and so on, and and of course, a lot of these men write, and you know, their memoirs or diaries or whatever, uh, what they thought of him. A, a Lieutenant Bowerbank, for example, describes Napoleon in this way: Napoleon Bonaparte is about five feet seven inches high, rather corpulent, but remarkably well made. His hair is very black, cut close, whiskers shaved off, large eyebrows. Gray eyes, the most piercing I ever saw. Rather full of face, 
dark but peculiar, uh, peculiar complexion, his nose and mouth proportionate, broad shoulders, and apparently strongly built. Upon the whole, he is a good-looking man, and when young, must have been handsome. Humph. He appears about 45 or 46, his real age, and greatly resembles the different prints I have seen of him in London. His walk is a march, or, as far as a sailor may be allowed to judge, very like one. And to complete the portrait, I must add that in walking, he generally carries his hands in the pockets of his pantaloons or folded behind his back. So that's, you know, I, I'm always fascinated to read uh, firsthand descriptions that, uh, that people have of anyone uh, in history. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a, a, a typical kind of description of Napoleon. Do you mind if I uh, add a couple? Oh, please do. Thank you. I, um, I'm taking these out of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, England's Prisoner by Frank Giles. And he writes uh, a quote from Maitland himself, who says of Napoleon, His manners were extremely pleasing and affable. He joined in every conversation, relating numerous anecdotes, and endeavoured in every way to promote good humour. He possessed, to a wonderful degree, a facility in making a favourable impression. He appeared to have great command of temper, for though no man could have had greater trials than fell to his lot, during the time he remained on board Bellerophon, he never, in my presence, or as far as I know, allowed a fretful or captious expression to escape him. Which, considering the situation he was in, um, speaks a lot to his self-control or the, the impression that he wanted to give? Or do you think he generally believed that things were going to go well and the British were going to treat him favorably? Well, as I've said, I, I think that he felt that things were likely to go well. Of course, he realizes he's really put himself in a position of weakness. He has relatively little uh, leverage right now in terms of, of being able to determine his own fate. Uh, if worse comes to worst, he can do what he does. He can bluster. He can he can complain. He can offer legalistic arguments, uh, all of which, by the way, are, are, are in my opinion, legitimate. Uh, but the reality is he he is now under British control, and there's really no way he's going to be able to avoid being under British control unless the British want him to, you know, to be free of, of them, like as, for example, taking him to America or, or allowing him to settle as a private citizen with full, full liberty uh, in, in, in Great Britain somewhere. According, uh, according to this book, it says that his, his suggestions, if he was to settle in Britain, was that he was going to do it incognito. He, was going to, he wanted to take the name of Colonel Muron, an aide-de-camp killed at the Battle of Arcola. I've, I never realized that before. Well, that was one of the suggestions that was made, uh, and I've always thought that that might very well have been, at least in part, out of desperation. Uh, listen, if you don't want, you know, me, uh, you know, a, a, a focus of attention and, and possible intrigue, uh, let me be incognito. Very and hard by to, the way, the very other, hard to the imagine other... Napoleon uh, <laughs> being incognito, isn't it? Well, I would think it would be difficult, to say the least. How, however, there, another reason might very well be that, that, number one, he might not want to have all that attention. He might not really want to live in a situation where he is a, an object of curiosity, where he is constantly besieged by people who, 
who 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 want to pester him, who who want to shake his hand, or you know, in the modern world, it would be you know, can will you pose with the picture for me? He didn't have to worry about that. But I mean, but uh, there would be a possibility that 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 would be it. And there might also have been a security issue. He might very well have felt that living incognito would make it a little bit more difficult for you know Austrian or Russian or Prussian or whoever, you know, somebody to want to assassinate him. Is it fair to say, do you think, that at this particular point in time, he was probably the most famous person in the world? Oh, sure. I mean, he's he's one of the most famous people in the world 200 years later. <laughs> and I think it's very clear that he that, that he was the most famous person in the world. I mean, there were certainly other people whose names were very, very well known to, to lots of people. Uh, but it would be really hard to imagine anyone... Uh, certainly in the Western world. Now, sure. you know, I'm not going to say that there isn't somebody in China who was much better known to the Chinese than than Napoleon, uh, given the nature of the world in those days. But but certainly to the Western world, which would be the United States, you know, and West Western Europe, uh, any of the colonies, I, I would say, yeah, sure. I mean, America was still uh, by 1815 a, a relatively small concern compared to, you know, England and Europe, etc. Uh, and it's obviously in the days before radio, before Hollywood, before sure. motion pictures, uh, yeah. Well, again, I mean, you know, in America, the, obviously the, the, the president of the United States might, might, might well be more, more well-known in, in the United States than Napoleon. But that was probably a pretty close thing when you really get down to it. Uh, uh, maybe earlier when when Washington and then and 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 and, and Adams and particularly Jefferson, uh, when Jefferson was president, uh, Napoleon might who who of course then was first consul might might not have been as famous in the United States as Jefferson, but by the time uh, uh, 1815 comes around, I I think in the Western world there's very little question Napoleon was the most famous, and our some of our uh, British uh, compatriots out there might say he was the most infamous, uh, but however you want to say it, uh, he he was certainly the the number one recognized person in the Western world, uh, without question. Love him or hate him, and, and and some of them did you know one or the other. I've got another interesting quote here, and I'm hoping I'm not stealing your thunder, but um, you're probably no, please please. You're going to talk about the fact that um, Captain Maitland's superior, Admiral Lord Keith who was commander-in-chief of the Channel Fleet, came and um, jumped on board the Bellerophon at one stage um, after Napoleon was on board. And um, after he'd had uh, several encounters with Napoleon, he uh, told Maitland, Damn the fellow. If he'd obtained an interview with His Royal Highness, the Prince Regent, in half an hour they would have been the best friends in England. So it obviously uh, wasn't just the onlookers or the, the, the right. junior-ranking uh, naval officers who were impressed by Napoleon, even Admiral Lord Keith, who you can imagine would have been Napoleon's sworn enemy, was uh, impressed by him enough to think that if Napoleon had got to England and got to meet the Prince Regent, uh, he would have done with him what he did with Tsar Alexander uh, 10 years earlier. Sure, and, and you, you did steal my thunder a little bit in the sense that you're maybe just a little bit ahead of the game on that, but you're absolutely correct. And one of the themes that we're going to see through here is Napoleon is desperate to get on British soil. And we talked a little bit about some of the legalistic things uh, last episode, if I recall, mm -hmm. uh, the difference between the law of the sea and the law of the land. 
but regardless of, of, of those differences, Napoleon understands that once he lands on British soil, he has some very, very specific rights. And by the way, some of, some of his supporters are going to make an effort to get him on, on British soil, and, and, and there's going to be some rather humorous uh, ways to avoid that. But one of the greatest fears that the military had, and in a sense you have the, the military and, 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 and the, the, the government sort of on one side and the prince regent and an awful lot of the people of England on the other side. I think if you ask the average person in England, even those who didn't like Napoleon, other than the ones who hated him so much they would just soon have him shot or thrown into a hulk, a prison hulk. Uh, I would would guess that if you took a public opinion poll at that time, that a rather substantial percentage, uh, perhaps a majority, perhaps not, of, of British people would say, Sure, let the bloke you know uh, settle in 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 the United in in in, in uh, Great Britain, uh, and uh, keep where well, we can keep an eye on him, and 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 quite frankly, uh, we we might find him you know an amusing uh, neighbor, uh, and and had he been able, as you as as your quote from Admiral Lord Keith uh, makes very clear. Had he been able to get an audience with the Prince Regent, no one doubts that there's at least a very good likelihood that Napoleon would have convinced the Prince Regent to allow him to settle uh, in London or in the countryside, you know, wherever people wanted him to be. And while the power of the Prince Regent was clearly not absolute, uh, if he decreed that his new friend Napoleon was going to stay in Great Britain, it's doubtful that the government could do much about it, at least not officially. Now, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if somebody in the government say, all right, where are those assassins, you know, now now that we need them? Uh, But I don't know that. I mean, that's that's conjecture. Uh, They might very well say, okay, we'll give it a try and, and see what happens. So, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. This is this is what Napoleon wants. I mean, he wants two things: either just to be put on a ship straight away, and, and off he goes to the United States, or to be landed in England. And initially, he is convinced, I believe, that he is going to go to England. And in the meantime, uh, Captain Maitland is a little bit nervous. You know, he has accepted Napoleon onto his ship. Uh, not not clapped him into to irons, uh, treated him as a distinguished guest at the very least, and he's not real sure that this is going to go over very well. But around ten thirty in the morning, Sir Henry Hottam's flagship, the Superb, or the Superb, uh, forgive my using French. Uh, came on, and Maitland quickly jumps into a skiff or whatever and, and goes over to see his immediate commanding officer. Uh, and Hotham was absolutely delighted. Uh, he says, don't worry, my, my, my boy, you've done very, very well. I will certainly send favorable reports on, 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 on your behalf. Uh, 
and, and I'm delighted in particular that you didn't have to actually promise Napoleon anything. I mean, had Maitland promised Napoleon, yes, I will take you and land you on shore, it would have been a little bit more difficult for the British Navy to refuse to do that. Now, I think in the long run they might very well have, but the honor of a British officer would, 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 would be at risk at that point, a British captain in particular. Uh, and, and, you know, Maitland would have been speaking for the government when he made a promise like that. So, so Hottam was absolutely uh, elated that, that, uh, that no such promises had been made. Now, remember, Napoleon and his entourage think that a promise has been made, and I'm not at all convinced that Maitland didn't deliberately mislead them. And again, I've, I'm an admirer of Maitland's. I think he was put in a tough position. Uh, but whatever the case may be, uh, everything is fine as far as Maitland is concerned. So, given that, when Sir Henry Hottam says, well, my lad, I'll be glad to take Napoleon off your hands and and put him onto to my flagship. <clears throat> Maitland says, "Thanks, but no thanks, sir. I'm I'm happy to to remain uh, to acting as Napoleon's host because clearly Maitland thinks that there's some advantage now. Now that his his effort has been exonerated, uh, there's some advantage to to being Napoleon's host. Plus, Maitland likes Napoleon. In all honesty, the two guys did get along pretty well. And and I think you always find that people who serve in the military, people who have positions, your officers have positions of authority and, and responsibility and so on. I think there's a camaraderie that 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 exists regardless of whether or not uh, they're on opposite sides. And I've seen this many times uh, where 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 people on either side recognize and admire the efforts of people on, on the other side. And uh, so, so Maitland and, and Napoleon get along fine. Uh, Maitland uh, goes back to his ship and tells uh, Napoleon that, that the admiral would like to, uh, to, to, to visit Napoleon that afternoon. Uh, and, of course, Napoleon's delighted. As far as he's concerned, the higher up the food chain he gets to go, uh, the, the, the better off his chances are. And interestingly enough, and, and, you know, Napoleon's done this a few times already on his, on his trip from Malmaison south. You'll, you'll, listeners will recall that uh, on several occasions, Napoleon, you know, was sort of playing emperor, acting as though he were still emperor. And even here, you know, on, on the, the, the British ship, he, he, he's being treated and he's acting like he were emperor. So Napoleon immediately sends Count Bertrand uh, along with Captain Maitland. And at this point, Captain Maitland is, is, is almost working for Napoleon, you know, uh, over to, to make official formal contact with the admiral uh, to invite them to visit the emperor. Uh, and I think the British may have rolled their eyes slightly, but I also think that British society was such, particularly amongst officers, that protocol was extremely important to them. They understood that Napoleon was, at a minimum, a retired general. And, and, and at that point, I think they at least were treating him as, as a retired, if you will, emperor. So 
you know, of course they're going to to allow him to have certain kind of protocol things. And so uh, later on, uh, Hotham arrives with uh, Captain uh, Senhouse and and uh, who was the captain of the flagship and his second his secretary, Mr. Irving, later in the day. And Napoleon is the gracious host. He he shows the admiral his his portable library that's been brought on board. And they talk about the British Navy. They talk about war in general. They talk about politics. They talk about all sorts of things. And Napoleon has to be beaming because so far they've played the game just the way he wants them to. You know, they, he's in he, he's in the best cabin on the ship. He's being treated like an emperor. They're going through this protocol that I just talked about. Uh, Napoleon sits them down to dinner at around five o'clock. Napoleon's at the head of the table. Uh, he is the host of the dinner. Uh, they, they break out his imperial service uh, uh, on, on the table. Uh, and he has the admiral, you know, to his right, Madame Bertrand, the woman to his left. Uh, and, and it's a very friendly thing. And the admiral invites uh, Napoleon to join him on his ship for breakfast the following day. You know, it's a reciprocation. It's just like if I have friends over for dinner, there's at least a reasonable chance that they will eventually reciprocate by asking me over for, for a dinner. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the, the, the laws of, 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 of social uh, gatherings or, or whatever, and, and, and the, the British are following along with that uh, fine. So they drink coffee after dinner, now they would go to the the, the lounge, the after cabin. Uh, Napoleon uh, demonstrates his camp bed, which has been brought over, uh, and 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 finally the party breaks up. The Brits leave. Uh, Napoleon goes to bed, you know, relatively early. And as I say in 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 my book, uh, uh, Road to Saint Helena, Napoleon after Waterloo, where where a lot of this information can be found and a great deal more, of course. Uh, it was an amazing day. I mean, let's let's all just take a deep breath and think about what's transpired this day. You have Napoleon leaving French soil. You have him surrendering, whatever you want to call it, to the British. You have him being treated with extreme dignity. You have him being, you know, offered the opportunity to, to receive the admiral of, 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 of the fleet in that area. Uh, you, you, you receive the admiral, you host a dinner, you're, you're going to, to, to go and be hosted by him the next day. You know, this is this is about as good a first day under British control as Napoleon or anybody else in his entourage could possibly have imagined. Short of having Hotham give Napoleon absolute assurances that he could go to America or that he would be, that the, you know, the Prince Regent had directed he'd be brought straight to him. I mean, yeah, you could come up with stuff that would, that would be even better. But all things considered, and Napoleon wouldn't have expected immediate decisions, immediate things like this. The game is played out all of a pace, and it was going 
extraordinarily well. Aha. Indeed. A pregnant pause. It was. I thought that, that was my cue. I've had the microphone on mute because the garbage trucks are outside my house making a terrible noise. Um, we were talking before about uh, the impression that Napoleon may have made on the Prince Regent. And um, I uh, actually have read that uh, we, we talked in the last episode about the letter that Napoleon wrote to the Prince Regent, you know, basically um, sucking up to him and, and uh, asking for... Uh, hospitable treatment by the British. I throw myself on your mercy like Themistocles, etc. Uh, apparently, the prince did get the letter um, and was impressed by it. I, I, it's, uh, apparently, Napoleon addressed him as Altesse Royale. I don't know what that means. Do you? What's Altesse mean in French? Well, I'd have to look it up. Come on. You know your French. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I should look it up as well. But um, apparently the prince was impressed by it, said it was more correct and proper. More correct, I must say, than any ever received. A highness. I mean, yeah, Altes means essentially, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, my mind isn't functioning, but it <laughs> basically means your highness. Your highness, uh, okay. You know, Altesse means, means you know, highness or, or your highness, something like that. Your highness, the prince royal, you know. Okay. But apparently Louis XVIII, who had been living in exile in England, used to use the form Monseigneur. When he addressed him, but so the prince was impressed, and also um, right. Nepal, but but according again, to, this is in Frank Giles's book. He says um, that is at least the story that Lord Holland, in his foreign reminisc- reminiscences, recounts. But documents in the royal archives at Windsor show that in fact Louis XVIII's letters to the region did refer to him as Votre Altesse Royale. So a more likely explanation of the regent's allegedly favourable reaction to Napoleon's letter is to be found in Napoleon's description of that inordinately vain prince as the most powerful, the most constant, and the most generous of my enemies. So from this, it sounds like the prince regent was actually quite favourable towards the Napoleon's letter, and you would assume the idea of treating Napoleon with some dignity, but uh, somewhere between the Prince Regent and um, Admiral Lord Keith, it, it didn't happen. Well, you've got to remember to, to, give, to give the British military its due. The British military has been involved in, in, in oh, almost 20 years of war with France and, and certainly with Napoleon, 15 years. Uh, they don't want any possibility that Napoleon's going to pop up yet again. So from the, from the military standpoint, it's time for this guy to go and to go in such a way that, that he can no longer, you know, become our nemesis once again. Uh, they don't look at it from the standpoint that, that the Prince Regent might, uh, where this is a fellow uh, monarch, uh, they don't look at it from the standpoint of, of a fair number of British citizens who, who admired uh, Napoleon. Uh, you remember, there's, there's a, a, a faction in British politics that was very pro-French and very pro-Napoleon. We've alluded to that from time to time in, in the, what, two years of this podcast. And, and uh, so Napoleon, if he gets onto British soil... Not only is going to have some legal uh, rights, but he's also going to have 
a significant portion of, of popularity, so a significant amount of popularity uh, uh, with people, including, as you say, I think rightfully, the, the Prince Regent is likely to be uh, already somewhat impressed by him, and I think once they meet, uh, he would almost certainly be even even more impressed with him. Your your uh, analogy to to uh, Emperor Alexander of, of Russia uh, is is a good one. Uh, those two fought each other, and yet when they met, they they became good friends. Of, as as far as far as people in those conditions could become good friends. And there was obviously a big uh, propaganda war going on inside England at the time. There were a number of newspapers that were either for or against Napoleon. The, uh, the Times and the Courier, I believe, which were Tory papers and supportive of the, the government at the time, were definitely against Napoleon and, and calling him all sorts of names and, and declaring that he should be <laughs> executed and etc. Then you had papers like the Morning Chronicle and the St. James Chronicle, which were Whiggish papers that were actually you know, a bit more supportive of Napoleon's cause. And there were quotes apparently saying, we object to no measure that is indispensable to public security, but let not the laws of England be violated. Britain will be found incapable of trampling on a man who has no longer the power to resent it. But then you've got the Times uh, and, and people writing into the Times um, under pseudonyms, uh, you know, basically saying that, um, particularly when the, the suggestion came out that he was going to be sent to St. Helena, saying that that was um, outrageous. This man is to be suffered to escape a second time. Now that we have paid for his guilt by a more lamentable waste of gallant lives than were ever before lost by us in any single battle, i.e. Waterloo, now we are to become his protectors. So there was obviously a, a, you know, a, a lot of healthy discussion going on in England, but as I think we've said many times over the last uh, few episodes, by no means were all of the people living in England uh, against Napoleon or you know, against the idea that he should be treated with some amount of respect um, after his final abdication. Well, they certainly were not, Cameron, and, and I agree, and, and that's what I've been saying. You know, and your your comparison of the newspapers is extremely uh, good, and, and, and it's important to understand. Uh, newspapers reflect divisions in society. Sometimes they foment divisions as well, but they largely reflect divisions in society, uh, political or otherwise. And, and, and there was a very political divide uh, in British society as to what, should be done uh, with Napoleon. Now, mind you, the people who were actually in charge, which is to say the British Navy at this point, uh, I don't think really gave two hoops in Hades for what a big chunk of the British people thought. As long as they could keep Napoleon away from the Prince Regent, they were going to do with Napoleon what they felt was most appropriate and you know the hell with anyone else uh the newspapers on the other side could rant and rave all they want to they have no power uh and and uh this is this is the way they looked at it <clears throat> and in fact as we as we all know already but we'll you know get there in our in our own good time all of a course uh 
that's exactly the way it's going to uh, to work out. Can I also just in, in, uh, mention the idea of habeas corpus, which apparently was much discussed in the British newspapers at the time? You're getting a little ahead of me, but that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> you sure? No, that's all right. I can stop. I, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, this, this whole idea that uh, he should be given the benefit of a trial uh, under British law, English law, um, I'm not sure which is correct. Um, there was a English constitutional lawyer called Capel Loft who said that Bonaparte on the Bellerophon was within the protection of English law and therefore could only be deported after trial and sentence. Now, that was, of course, a view rejected by the Tory papers, the Courier, which contended that Bonaparte was a prisoner of war and as such was not entitled to habeas corpus, in addition to which he was a man who had broken his parole at Elba and involved Europe again in warfare and slaughter for his own selfish and ambitious purposes, which, as obviously we've covered on the show, is not entirely accurate. Uh, was it him who declared war on Europe after he left Elba? They declared war on him. In fact, he went to extreme lengths to secure peace for France unsuccessfully. Um, so, uh, again, this whole idea of, you know, I think as we discuss what how he ends up on St. Helena, it's important to examine the question of why he wasn't given the benefit of a trial under English law. Well, he wasn't given the benefit of a trial under English law because the the people who had him, the military and, and the government, did not want him to uh, be given that. And they they claimed that as long as he was not on British soil, that, that he uh, was not subject to that. What I thought you were going to talk about when you mentioned habeas corpus, though, <clears throat> was the effort to serve... Napoleon with a writ uh, of habeas corpus. Uh, and as it happens, and, and this is again a little ahead of ourselves here, but we'll, we'll mention it anyway, there was a, a libel trial of, of some kind uh, going on in, the, in the, the, the Great Britain. I keep wanting to say United Kingdom, but it wasn't the United Kingdom then, I don't think. Uh, and and there were a number of witnesses that had been summoned. One of them, and I do not recall uh, offhand the reason for this, uh, but one of the witnesses that had been summoned was Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, at the time that the, that the summons had been issued, uh, Napoleon was in France, and, and so a lot of folks sort of, smiled and rolled their eyes a little bit and said, yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, but as it happens, once he's under British control in the ships, all of a sudden it's theoretically very possible to serve him with this summons and under British law, even on the ship, once this is done, the British government, the British Navy, would have absolutely no choice whatsoever under penalty of law. They would have to allow Napoleon to go to, to testify at this libel trial. Uh, once that happened, now he is in court. Now he's on soil, British soil. Uh, he's no longer quite as under the control of the government, or certainly not the Navy, 
as as we both have have pointed out, there was a great deal of of liberal uh, a British uh, government that was uh, in favor uh, of Napoleon. There's a lot of people out there who were in favor. Uh, there was already uh, efforts by liberal British officials and politicians, member of Parliament, and so on, who were making it very clear that they did not believe Napoleon should be imprisoned, just like there were those on the other side uh, who were talking about how, yes, he should be imprisoned. In in a sense, it's not too unlike the debate over torture here in early 21st century uh, America and, uh, you know, the prison at Abu Ghraib and, and Gitmo and so on. You've got people on both sides who firmly believe that their approach to, you know, fighting terrorism is is the appropriate one. Well, Napoleon was, in the eyes of some people, uh, you know, a terrorist who needed to be put under very strict control, uh, and in the eyes of other uh, people, uh, a progressive and somewhat misunderstood figure who, who should be allowed to retire uh, gracefully as other uh, deposed monarchs had been. So, at any rate, Admiral Lord Keith, has, your, your buddy there, has given orders that under no circumstances whatsoever was Napoleon to be allowed to reach uh, shore. But in the meantime, a subpoena, the court issues a subpoena for Napoleon. Uh, and in accordance with law, they're trying to deliver it. There's this... Uh, there's this lawyer, and it seems to me the name of his firm includes a lawyer named Markham, no relation as far as I know, uh, who is trying to deliver it either to Lord Keith or to Napoleon. And I won't go into all the details. If you want to read a, an accounting of it, you're welcome to, Cameron. But, but essentially, Napoleon is not going to be you know, very easy to get to, but Lord Keith could be. And so this guy is trying to track down Lord Keith, who who sneaks off of one ship onto another, puts out to sea, does everything, he orders Napoleon's ship to put out to sea, does everything he possibly can to prevent the subpoena from being issued. Now this, by the way, in and itself, is a violation of the law. You know, to deliberately avoid uh, the the allowing of a serving of a subpoena that which you know to be legally issued is is in and of itself illegal. Uh, but he figured he could get away with that. But if the subpoena were ever actually given to him, or worse yet, to Napoleon, uh, then the jig would be up. There would be no way that Napoleon uh, could be prevented from from going onto shore. But but again, this actually takes place a little bit longer. Uh, to get back to to our story uh, as as we begin to wind this up at least a little bit the the next day after this wonderful or not maybe not wonderful but amazing day and certainly a wonderful dinner uh Napoleon gets up very early as he was wont to do and and the uh the, the British have assembled a marine guard uh, on the deck in his honor. Uh, and so he reviews the Marine Guard very graciously. And this is just, it, it could have been the Imperial Guard. I'd love to have seen this. I mean, you know, imagine, my friends, the the situation that we have here. We have a, dep- 
deposed French emperor, the scourge of Europe, the ogre from Corsica, reviewing a British marine guard on a British ship, a guard that was put out in formation in Napoleon the ogre's honor. I mean, this, you couldn't write a better story than this. So here he is, they're saluting him as he goes up to them, and and just like, I don't know if he tweaked anyone's ears or offered any of them snuff, <laughs> uh, like he might have done to the Imperial Guard, but he stops, with, you know, as he's walking down the ranks, he stops and he asks the men, well, where are you from you know, how long have you been in the service? What about your wife? Do you, do you miss your, how often do you see your wife? He asks them to perform certain kinds of close order drills. Uh, and these guys have to have loved it. I mean, it's it, being a Marine in, in the British Navy on a ship, there's a lot of routine, a lot of boredom, ladies and gentlemen. Let me, let me, let me assure you, and, and admittedly, I'm not a sailor, uh, and so I've never been in this situation, but from everything I have ever read and from sailors that I've talked to, the biggest enemy uh, is boredom. The biggest enemy is getting into this little routine, doing crap you don't really want to do, uh, finding a way to keep busy, you know, cleaning everything 30 times, et cetera, et cetera. So all of a sudden, you get a chance to be reviewed by by Napoleon Bonaparte, and he's having you do close-order drills, and you're talking with him, uh, presumably translated by, by Captain Maitland. Uh, you're talking with him, and he's asking you about your wife and kids. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff you sit around the campfire for many, many years afterwards, uh, although admittedly not a lot of campfires on British ships, but you sit around and you talk about, you know, I had, I had a chance to talk with the, with the emperor, you know, Napoleon asked me about about my lovely wife, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is this is really amazing stuff. You know, uh, so you know after that they get into the barge, they go over to the superb uh, uh, La Lacaz uh, shows up to join uh, a Napoleon. He's dressed in a navy officer's uniform, and uh, Napoleon teases him by he says, "That's the first time I've seen you in that uniform." Uh, uh, but Lacaz had been a Navy lieutenant, apparently, before the French Revolution, and and he figured this would maybe impress the, the, the British sailors a bit more. So so he uh, he does that. Uh, and so he they, they, they go over. Uh, he arrives on the ship. The entire ship's company has been turned out uh, in, in honor of the emperor. And by the way, at this stage, and this is important, my friends, for you to remember, to tuck this in the back of your mind. We we may not discuss it until the next episode. We'll see. But but they're calling him the emperor. No one's giving any grief about about Napoleon having the title of emperor. Uh, so you know the offices are presented. He's given a grand tour of the ship. Uh, they serve him breakfast in the captain's cabin, just exactly the way you would expect it. Uh, it's an English breakfast, by the way, so Napoleon doesn't eat a whole lot. Uh, and and uh, at one point, the, the admiral actually says, listen, I'll, I'll send out a, a passport to have your horses and carriages brought from Rochefort to my ship for you. Uh, 
never happened, as it, as it turns out. But, I mean, he was really going out of his way to try to be helpful. Uh, midday or noon or so, they go, they go back to the Lothron, and, and Napoleon is again given the honor of having the crew manning the yards and so on. So here's, you know, we go through another day, basically, uh, and, and things are still going well. Napoleon has been treated well, and he thinks everything is fine. Uh, the Myrmidon, uh, Mir- uh, uh, forgive my pronunciation of that ship, uh, arrives in the area, uh, joined shortly by the uh, Moosh, uh, ships that had the rest of Napoleon's uh, entourage, the rest of the materials that he had sent from the mainland, uh, sheep and vegetables sent by the the French uh, commodore of, of uh, at Rochefort uh, were were in, included in, in in all of that, uh, and so around the middle of the afternoon or so on the sixteenth. Uh, the little fleet sails for Torbay, England. Uh, and he thinks he's sailing uh, into something good. But he is, in fact, sailing uh, to a destiny far different than anything he had imagined. 